Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 26th of April 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by our very own nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Okay, we'll get started on Sudan and the uh, British uh, citizens living in Sudan wanting to get out as quickly as possible. Rishi Sunak has decided that he needs to be front and centre. Uh, because of the criticism that's been going on perhaps over the last number of days about the Foreign Office really doing nothing uh, to get Brits out of Sudan. Uh, so here he is in the uh, Foreign Office, the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office Crisis Centre yesterday afternoon. Speaking to staff, he said, on the continuing evacuation effort to help British nationals leave Sudan. Um, so here is the Foreign Office's, uh, or the government's latest update on Sudan. The British government will help British nationals to leave Sudan from the 25th of April, which was yesterday, of course. Uh, flights leave from Wadi Sidna uh, air, Airfield. Uh, and uh, please travel to this location as soon as possible, is what they were saying to, to people. Uh, we can only evac British pas- evacuate British passport holders and immediate family members uh, with existing UK entry clearance. Uh, seats will be allocated on the basis of vulnerability, starting with family groups with children. So uh, this was the image that was being pushed out uh, yesterday or today, rather, uh, of them getting on uh, the military aircraft uh, in Sudan on the way out. And I believe that that only leaves the United States, uh, who I'm not, haven't heard that have started removing their nationals yet, but they certainly seem to, to be uh, taking the same attitude towards people in Sudan as, uh, as Britain was up until yesterday anyway. Yeah, so we don't want to stop the conflict. We oh, well, they say pre- they do. They, all, the, all their statements <laughs> say they want to stop the conflict. We don't want to prevent it happening, but we want all the uh, we want all of the media hype around doing something once the violence is underway. Yes. Now, uh, in the meantime, as far as Ukraine is concerned, uh, Britain has acknowledged. Uh, at least Defence Minister James Heapy has acknowledged sending depleted uranium rounds to. Uh, to Ukraine. So this was uh, said in the Commons yesterday. Uh, we've sent thousands of rounds of Challenger 2 ammunition to Ukraine, including depleted uranium armour-piercing rounds. For operational security reasons, we will not comment on Ukrainian usage rates for the rounds provided. Uh, but then he went on to say this, uh, there is no obligation for the UK to help clear up depleted uranium rounds fired from Challenger 2 tanks by the armed forces of Ukraine. And Brian, I think that is utterly despicable. Well, excuse me, Mike, they're despicable people. But of course, if we were to believe their rhetoric that uh, Ukraine is going to become um, a fully functioning country again, then the depleted depleted uranium problem is going to fall on the Ukrainians. The inference is we don't care whether we clean it up because they know full well that it's going to end up on Russian-controlled territory. So, so the cynicism of these people is just unbelievable. We're protecting the planet, but we're quite happy when we've got a war that we want running to cover the whole place in depleted uranium. Indeed, so sickening. Not, it's sickening. Absolutely. So we're not going to clear it up, but but we are going to. We are committed uh, to helping Ukraine emerge from this war, secure, prosperous, and free. And we're supporting. Uh, a range of activities to meet Ukraine's immediate needs. He's, well, that's, uh, he's talking about ammunition. Yes. Is what he's talking about, the in, desperation to get more ammunition in, and we'll talk about casualties in a minute. So what was uh, the Russian response to this? Well, here's Sergei Lavrov. He's at the UN at the moment. Uh, this is what he said. We've spoken about depleted uranium several times. No matter what they say, that's Britain, uh, that it's not radioactive and it's not on the IAEA lists. 
he said uh, there, the, there are facts and in interviews with people that suffered in the former Yugoslavia that were shown on television channels worldwide. So the UK needs to understand its responsibility. Uh, let's not just mention Yugoslavia, let's also mention Iraq and uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, birth deformities uh, as a result of uh, depleted uranium dust uh, lying around that country. And, and pictures which are simply too horrible, too appalling for us to even show on the UK column news. So uh, this is one of the things that, yes. make, that makes it, um, yes, yes, run out of words. Indeed. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, what's happening in Ukraine, uh, in Ukraine itself. And the key battle remains and will remain um, the city of Bakhmut until it falls. And that is looking very imminent indeed. Um, now, the first thing I want to say is that we are able to give you these reports due to the work of many different independent uh, alternative media sites. I try and spread the use of uh, material around to give each person credit. I have focused in on Weeb Union over recent reports uh, because of the particular style that they use. But I want to give credit to everybody that's trying to get the truth out about what's happening in the battlefield. And we very much hope that our viewers and listeners will support them. So here's the map. And uh, of course, the key thing to remember is that these little blue zones are the zones of Russian advance. The Russians are minimizing their own casualties by taking the city a little piece at a time, uh, maximum damage on the Ukrainians, minimum damage on the Russians, and they move forward as the uh, battle on the ground allows. Now, we'll put in some other key parts here. The Russians have now advanced to the northwest and have fully cut the 506 supply road. This road essentially has been cut for weeks due to the fact the Russians could shell it, but now the Russians have moved, moved down to take uh, the the bend in the road at that particular point with a red uh, arrow. Uh, they're controlling uh, the road now physically, and they've started to advance to the south of the road itself. And this means, of course, that the Ukrainian forces are completely uh, cut off apart from pitiful attempts to resupply over mud tracks uh, directly to the west of the city. Um, so the Ukrainians are now driven back into what's probably the last 10% of the, of the city itself. Um, they're trying to hold uh, two areas. This is the first of them. It's known as the garage zone. This is garages where people park their cars. That sounds a little bit strange to Western ears, uh, but in... in uh, days at the Soviet Union in particular, people would only use their cars for longer trips and the rest of the time they'd garage them. So this is a built up area that the Ukrainians tried to fall back on to defend, but the Russians have already breached it. And then the last bastion for the Ukrainians is an area of high rise buildings to the west, southwest of the city, which we've circled. But the Russians are advancing steadily. And the thing we now have to pay attention to is that the Russians are unleashing um, large aerial dropped bombs onto the Ukrainian positions. These are 1,500, uh, 500 or 1,500 kilogram bombs. 
They have, Russians have 3,000 kilogram bombs. Uh, they do immense damage. And of course, they bring huge casualties to the Ukrainians. If we have a look at a, a slightly um, expanded view of this battle in the city, uh, we can label the latest Russian gains. And I'm highlighting again that this uh, advance is into the northeast, north northeastern sector of the Garage Strongpoint area. So we'd just like to say thank you very much to Weeb Union for providing these excellent reports. Uh, they're trying to get past 100,000 viewers on you, uh, subscribers on YouTube. Uh, if you can help them do that, I think it's deserved. This is another report. Now, I don't know where this has come from. I'll show it very quickly just to give people an overview. But you can see how one of the other analysts is looking in quite some detail at the Russian advances along the various street lines in Bakhmut. So Bakhmut is going to fall. There's no doubt about this. And this will allow the Russians to switch attention probably to Avdivka in the south and also the, the front uh, to the north of Bakhmut itself towards Seversk. I'm just going to play these two little clips on screen. Watch the right of the screen here, and you can see some quite large explosions. Uh, this is Ugladar. It's a very interesting little urban area with just high-rise buildings sticking up um, against the backdrop of an absolutely flat um, Ukrainian uh, back backdrop. Um, previously, the Russians have been very careful because they believe that civilians were still in this area. It would appear that there are none left and the Russians are now undertaking very heavy bombing, which again is increasing the Ukrainian casualties. This is another village area which I'm putting on screen to show the environment. This is what a typical village looks like in this immensely uh, flat area. And of course, the Russians deal with any resistance uh, by the Ukrainians by shelling. And again, we're talking vast casualties. Previously, we were talking of seven Ukrainians killed to every one Russian. But many of the analysts, including trained analysts, say this is now as high as 10 to 1 or even 12 to 1. And we shouldn't be surprised that even the Times now is going to have is having to talk about the casualty stream uh, coming back from the battlefield. Echoes of Stalingrad as casualty stream from the battle for Bakhmud. And they're talking about the work of the medical teams. And of course, we must also say many courageous people working to save Ukrainian soldiers. But the reality is that they are being killed in their hundreds hundreds each day as the uh, Russian attack moves forward. And of course, ultimately, who's responsible for these deaths? Well, the US, UK, NATO, the West for pumping in the arms, including depleted uranium. So truly appalling picture. There is only one result, and that is that Ukraine will fall uh, under uh, Russian control in the uh, eastern side of the country. Yes. Okay, let's come back to the UK then and to health issues. And uh, well, good news, everybody, because the NHS has signed a five-year deal with uh, Big Pharma uh, in order to provide what are described as world-leading medicine pricing, uh, sorry, a world-leading medicine pricing scheme. So this is the voluntary scheme for branded medicines pricing and access, which is uh, acronymed VPAS, uh, delivers value for money apparently to the taxpayer and saves the NHS billions. So that's excellent. Uh, so anyway, it secures, uh, it ensures that the NHS can continue to be one of the fastest health systems in the world to roll out 
innovative medicines. Uh, so this is the voluntary scheme for branded medicines, pricing and access. As I said, it was introduced in 2019 to keep the branded medicine bill affordable for the NHS by capping the growth of sales while improving patient access to medicines by getting new medicines into use more quickly and supporting our life sciences sector. So this is all about business, right? And, and the, just to reinforce this point, here's a quote uh, from uh, Will Quince, uh, who is the uh, health minister. Not only has VPAS delivered value for money for the taxpayer and saved the NHS billions of pounds, it has also saved people's lives. And Debbie, uh, just welcome to you to the program here because what struck me about that little quote is that for Will Quince, saving people's lives is a secondary issue. The primary issue is the business side. Of course, save money. And this is cheap, cheap and quick. And that's what's going to rule the day. And, you know, uh, maybe that's a good omen for some of us that uh, don't want Moderna in the country because they've just announced they're going to quadruple the, the prices of their products. So maybe we won't get them after all. What do you think? I have uh, a feeling we might, but who knows? I think, I think we will. Uh, OK, well, let, let's move on to this. Uh, uh, sorry, let's move on to this. This is quite an interesting uh, little story here because uh, uh, Rishi Sunak and Michelle Domlin have announced £100 million in funding for what they're describing as the Foundation Model Task Force. Um, this is uh, initial startup funding uh, for the task force responsible for accelerating the UK's capability in rapidly emerging uh, artificial intelligence. This is on top of £900 million investment into compute technology at budget. Uh, so uh, these foundation models, including large language, model, language models like ChatGPT and Google Bard, are AI systems trained on massive data sets, which can be used for a wide range of tasks across the economy. But guess what? They're mainly focusing on health, uh, and it seems, and uh, making sure that we can get medicines uh, into the uh, released as quickly as possible yeah. uh, and so on. So uh, uh, that's uh, quite uh, an interesting thing. So let's just uh, listen to what Rishi said uh, at the recent uh, Business Connect conference. This government is unashamedly pro-business. It's as simple as that. Business Connect is very simple. It's our government outreach program to make sure we're talking, listening, and meeting business leaders all around this country. We are here to listen to all of you, to understand your views. We need to make sure that this is the country where innovation is happening fastest, happening safest, that the jobs have been created here, that the new products and services of the future that are going to transform our lives are all being invented here. We want your ideas, we want your feedback, because if we can work together on this, I think the potential for this country is limitless. Right, so if we can work together on this, the potential is limitless. So just consider that, because what they're talking about is creating a sovereign artificial intelligence. Uh, and they're saying that in areas like healthcare, this type of AI has enormous potential to speed up uh, diagnosis, drug discovery and development. In education, it could transform teachers' day-to-day -day work, freeing up their time and focus to focus on delivering excellent teaching. But they're talking about building the UK's sovereign national capability so that our public services can benefit from the transformational impact of this type of AI. Now, when he's talking about conversations between private sector and government, he's talking about the unification of private sector and government to build, to build this thing. This is 
I mean, it's fascist, it's fascistic, isn't it? It's, it is, and a little bit later in the news, I've got a segment to do with regeneration where we've got this same problem. Are we, are we dealing with government or are we dealing with big business? In fact, the two are in bed. And so you would say, yeah, yes. that's a, a fascist type, type system. You could be argued that. So, yeah. so uh, Debbie, let's move on to the MHRA and some potentially good news here because uh, uh, Stephen... Uh, lightweight, or sorry, Lightfoot, I should say, has decided to resign. Uh, by now, he didn't say. Uh, so uh, the chair of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, Stephen, Stephen Lightfoot, has decided to stand down on the 11th of July, 2023, after almost eight years as a board member. Uh, so he's been chairman since 2020. He was a non-executive director uh, before that, uh, just a normal non-executive director. Uh, apparently, his, he's resigning because it's in line with his view that non-executives should not remain on any board for more than eight years to maintain their independent thought and objectivity. <laughs> no, he's, he's running. He is running. Right. So, so this, this was what I was going to ask you, Debbie. Is he wanting to obtain his uh, independent thought and objectivity? Does he have any independent thought and objectivity? Or is he running? He's running. He's definitely running. Rats leaving sinking ships comes to mind. How many more will go? Well, that was that was my next question. Do we think June will be straight after him? She's. Uh, I think after well, we've got a segment coming up on the news, and I think June's going to be. Well, I'm hoping everyone's going to share the segment that we're going to show on the news, and then I think June's going to be even more worried than she already is. Uh, well, everybody would be glad to know that. Uh, sorry. Well, I think we should just qualify. Why are these two individuals so worried? They're worried because the truth about their failure, their personal failure, and the failure of the MHRA as an organisation to protect the public from vaccine and pharmaceutical product damage, um, the truth about their failures is coming to light very quickly. And now the resignations start. What a surprise. Well, they, they've begun, the, they're beginning the recruitment process to re replace him today so they can find somebody uh, to be put in place by the time he leaves on the 11th of July. So uh, if you want the job, I'm sure you'll find an advertisement out there. Uh, okay, Debbie, what does that take us? Uh, GPs? It does. And, you know, we've been warning uh, of the problems getting in to see a GP. And we've also been saying that we're looking at the demise of GPs as we're seeing less surgeries, well, more surgeries close. And now we've got, uh, we've been told, this was a story that was reported by Cornwall Live, saying that the NHS is introducing radical changes to how GPs work, and it will affect millions. Now, apparently, if you can't get an appointment with your doctor, you will be offered an appropriate response. So I'm not quite sure what that appropriate response will be, but it says that it must either provide an on-the-spot assessment or redirection to an appropriate medical service. Now, what is this appropriate medical service? I wonder, is it a chatbot, perhaps, or is it a volunteer? No one seems to know, but we do know that the um, the whole structure of primary care is is falling apart and being rebuilt as we speak and not in a good way. And Steve Barclay, too, has been very busy this week. Uh, Steve Barclay, health minister, he's got very cheesed off with the nurses, the, the members of the Royal College of Nurses who have decided to take a two-day action uh, at the end of April, beginning of May. Um, apparently, hospital bosses have pressurised Steve Barclay to take this action because they say they simply 
can't cope and that more and more doctors, especially consultants, are not filling in. So as you can imagine, Pat Cullen, who is the head of the Royal College of Nursing, is not happy. And, you know, rather than trying to sort this huge mess out, the hostilities are increasing because she's blasting Steve Barclay over the disgraceful use of legal action. She says they're not acting illegally. Steve Barclay's going to challenge um, their right to strike. And Pat Cullen's saying it's bullying, basically. So... This is not boding well for the future, I don't think, when it comes to talks. So then if we move on, Steve Barclay is is really busy this week. And I was shocked to see this story in the Mail Online where um, these huge amounts of sexual assaults are taking place, many of them in hospitals. So the Mail said that at least 2,088 rapes 4,451 sexual assaults were reported in hospitals between January 2019 and October 2022, a rate of 33 a week, and one in seven took place on hospital wards, and only 4.1% of the crimes led to a suspect facing a charge or summons. Now, I found that really shocking. And to go with that, I also found a story that was covered a couple of years ago, um, admittedly, in The Independent, which reported that hundreds of nurses and other health workers were being disciplined over sex assaults or abuse. And they were mentioning 53 clinicians were struck off, 20 were cautioned, and a further 29 were either suspended, had restrictions placed on their practice, or agreed to be removed from registration. Shockingly, more than half of the actions followed allegations of sexual abuse of a child patient. Now, I found this very, very concerning. And I do know someone um, actually that was assaulted at the Royal Cornwall Hospital, Trillisk, and it is a matter of a police inquiry. So I can't speak about it at the moment, although I hope to in the future. So this is obviously taking place. And then just to add, add insult to everything else, the Telegraph revealed this weekend, that nurses are to wear body cams in a crackdown on hospital sexual assaults. And apparently Steve Barclay is going to be giving his blessing on this. Now, I have to say this story worries me hugely, and perhaps we might discuss it more in extra, because the thought of patients being filmed by nurses with body cams, intimate procedures often, is horrific. Who sees that film? Where does it go? Uh, Perhaps patients should have body cams, I would argue. But perhaps that's for another discussion. I don't know if you've got comments on that, gentlemen, or if you just want me to carry on. Well, Debbie, somebody said all done on purpose. None will be prosecuted. All will fail upwards. Yeah, keep talking. Okay, so basically, um, I think this is exactly what it is. This is orchestrated breakdown. This is part of deliberate policy to create chaos and mayhem in the NHS. And predictably, well, over the years, we have seen people who've been responsible for the chaos and mayhem, they're being promoted. So I think an astute video, um, astute comment in our chat box today on that issue. Um, Okay, let's move on to lung cancer. 
Yeah, well, um, as we've been warning, it's not going to be uncommon to see a truck in your supermarket car park, uh, which will be offering you a scan on the spot chest screening in the back of a truck outside your supermarket for lung cancer. Um, we've been warning about this for quite a while. And here you go. Here they are. They're operating at 43 sites in England. Now, this 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 whole early testing is all very well, as we've said, for early testing for people. But if you're going to stick them on the end of a 7 million, 8 million waiting list, then it's not good. So we have been warning about this for ages. Um, so that's a sight to expect in your supermarkets. Meanwhile, uh, the WHO are, this is a very interesting article from Politico, and it's the way that it's written, actually. The WHO have, they've changed the name of monkeypox. So monkeypox is no longer, and it's mpox. So they've, they've asked people to get their jabs ahead of kink and fetish events. Now, I find this statement very interesting, the way they've worded it. And I don't know how the gay community um, or the trans community feel about this, but they say in a statement, the health body warned that there is a higher risk of catching the disease. Men who have sex with men with multiple sexual partners to continue to be aware of the symptoms of mpox, get tested and abstain from sex if they de develop symptoms and get the mpox vaccine if possible. The warning is particularly important as we go into the spring and summer months where a number of kink and fetish festivals, as well as numerous pride festivals, are, to set, are set to take place across towns and cities throughout Europe, the statement said. So I'm not quite sure how the, all of those communities will feel being banded together and sort of implying that the gay scene is the fetish scene and the kink scene. I think it's an interesting statement by the WHO, but obviously more another round of fear. And then um, if we just jump on to the COVID inquiry quickly, um, it seems that all ministers and advisers who have played a significant part in the COVID crisis response will be told to hand over their WhatsApp messages to the public inquiry. Now, this isn't just Matt Hancock's messages. This is all of the messages. Um, I wonder what's happened to all of the Zoom recordings, perhaps, that have been going on too and that haven't been summoned. But this inquiry concerns me greatly because there's no end date on it. And you can imagine the amount of time that these WhatsApp messages are going to take to go through. And I can see that it's only going to delay the inquiry even more. So that's that's something to, to just be alerted to. Um, looking at the USA, I'm wondering if um, what happens in the USA often happens in the UK. And Biden has teamed up with um, Bill Gates, that name again, for a five billion uh, vaccine project. This is a successor to Operation Warp Speed. Well, you know, I thought that the whole COVID issue was starting to, to wane, but according to President Biden, no. And the next operation is going to be next gen. So the project plans to develop a nasal COVID vaccine designed to prevent infection, which the current jabs fail to do. What an admission. Um, and it says at the bottom, as you can see, like warp speed, Biden's project next gen will receive funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and will be run by the U.S., Health Department, uh, Department of Health and Human Services. Doesn't that give you 
a lot of uh, warm, fuzzy feelings, as you would call them, uh, Brian. And then um, just my last um, slide on, on this particular segment, I just want to bring people's attention if they don't know about Parliament uh, T, Parliament Live TV, because many of the things that I see you catch on here, but you won't see on YouTube or on other platforms. If you go into Parliament TV, it will give you a search bar and you can search for, you can put health and, and I normally put health and social care committee in and it'll bring all of them up. And you'd be very surprised to see what is going on behind closed doors, but in plain sight. This um, debate, for example, took place on Tuesday, the 18th of April. Um, we will go into it in some more depth in another news, but you might like to just freeze the screen because you can see that Moderna were um, very influential during that select committee. And basically that select committee was saying pharmaceutical companies, manufacturing companies need more power and they need that. They're, they're the ones basically that are regulating the regulators. So keep an eye on Parliament Live TV. Now, on Monday's programme, uh, David Scott uh, mentioned the Freedom of Information response from Lanarkshire NHS, uh, talking about the uh, numbers of stillbirths, uh, early pregnancy losses, as they describe it, miscarriages and so on, uh, in 2022, doubling over 2021, in fact, doubling over the previous uh, four years or so. Uh, and David was wondering what, what was causing this. Uh, well, the Mail has uh, published this article uh, just by coincidence, uh, they're describing it as an exclusive. Uh, they're saying face masks may raise the risk of stillbirths, testicular dysfunction, and cognitive decline due to buildup of carbon dioxide, study warns. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but we were talking about this and reporting this from multiple sources in 2020 or so. But of course, and I, I'm just going to add a little bit later, I'm going to be talking about the Daily Mail again. O over... Many years, we've seen the Daily Mail grab something, they feed off the hype, and then they drop it pretty quickly. So they've got it now. Are they going to stick with it? Are they really going to get the lid off it? Or are we going to see the Daily Mail do what they often do, which is let the whole problem slide off into the long grass? Well, and yes. Uh, point. Uh, my question is, what, what is this article actually about? So if you put it back up again for a second, they're saying, uh, face masks may raise the risk of stillbirth, testicular dysfunction and cognitive decline in children. Explosive new research suggests. Now, as I say, they're uh, calling this an exclusive. Uh, they produced a nice graphic. Here it is. Uh, it says CO2 exposure caused brain damage, heightened anxiety and poor memory in young mice. According to the study, uh, CO2 exposure led to destruction of testicular cells and sperm in mice, according to the study, and stillbirths and birth defects after CO2 exposure in pregnant rats. Uh, masks trap CO2, they say, in big, uh, with their big red arrow there, which is then inhaled. Uh, now, we were talking about this, as we say, two years ago, multiple uh, scientific papers on this. And of course, if you remember back to 2020, uh, the British government uh, uh, saying, and the various scientific experts that they relied on, in inverted commas, uh, saying that uh, masks uh, you know, affect, are pretty ineffective at preventing transmission. Uh, that was what they were saying. Uh, now, uh, the question is, is this a cover-up for vaccine damage? I don't know, um, but I'm just going to throw that out there as a possibility. And really, uh, it's time that uh, that these issues were grabbed. Uh, the COVID inquiry, as Debbie was pointing out, has no end date, and it's certainly not uh, addressing these issues as far as I can see to date anyway. 
Okay, if you like what the UK has done, if you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there. And just a quick reminder that uh, our membership fees will go up on the 1st of May. So, But anybody that's a current member will stay on the current uh, rate. So if you want to get it before the price rise, uh, now would be a good time. Indeed. Uh, you um, could, yeah, sorry. No, sorry. Yeah, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop uh, if you'd like to support us that way. Uh, but in any case, please do share material you find on the various platforms, uh, especially from ukcolumn.org, of course. Okay, and uh, Debbie, you're going to tell us a little bit about your blog. I am. I did a, a little bit of a different blog this week. Um, some people might find it a little bit controversial, but I've been talking about the state of the NHS. I'm afraid it's not great news. And I've also been looking at mRNA technology. And uh, my message is I've come, I, I'm, I'm making quite an unequivocal statement really in my blog this week with regards to mRNA technology which actually is otherwise known as nanomedicine, but more to, more to come on that later. Okay, thanks, Debbie. Uh, okay, Bob says, Brian. Uh, right, well, to, to say that we're, we're putting this out as a streamed interview tomorrow at one o'clock. Uh, really interesting uh, discussion I had with Bob says um, a week or so ago. Um, he'd been working with Thetford community who were challenging 20-minute neighbourhoods. In reality, this is a sort of subset of the 15-minute city, but it's a very good interview and it's really wonderful to be speaking to more people who've decided, no, we've had enough, we're going to stand up and start doing things. So join join us for that live stream at one o'clock tomorrow. Uh, and then Debbie, on Thursday, uh, sorry, on Tuesday next week, uh, you've got an interview with you and David, but all, with speaking to Professor Norman Fenton. Yes, we do. And it's an amazing, marvellous interview. And um, I'll be giving you a little bit more news with regards to Professor Fenton in, in this news. So keep tuned. OK, thank you for that. And um, we want to um, give a shout out for our work by PCP, um, Public Pro uh, Child Protection Wales, and uh, Louise Collins from Liberty Tactics. They have got a podcast-a-thon. Uh, for Public Child Protection Wales. That's happening from 12 o'clock uh, Saturday, the 29th of April. So this coming Saturday until 6 p.m. on Sunday, the 30th of April. Now, they've done this before to raise money for the work that the ladies are doing to fight this appalling sexual sex education, as it's, uh, as it's known. We have supported them uh, but we're really asking all of our viewers to join in and help. Here's a little bit of their promotional video clip. Let's play that and then I'll give you some details of the uh, fundraiser itself. the High Court block classes about gender identity for three-year-olds because compulsory relationships and sex education classes are going to be taught to kids as young as three across Wales in the autumn. They are inappropriate and even dangerous. Well, yeah, if we're talking three-year-olds here, we should not be discussing the word sex and children in the same sentence. As a parent of four kids, if I found out that a school and teachers were deliberately hiding 
information like the gender identities, supposedly, of my kids. I'd be furious. Okay, and uh, we just pop on screen the details of the fundraiser itself, and you can see there 7,774 raised as of early, uh, the, earlier today, uh, but you've got details there so that you can uh, uh, visit the fundraiser, and hopefully you will join in because these ladies have done a huge amount of work, and as always, they need funding to continue that work, in particular to challenge things through the courts. Um, okay, a Plymouth story now, and uh, well, this is uh, Danny Bamping on screen. Uh, we've mentioned him several times before on this programme, but he has been taking Plymouth City Council to court uh, in an effort to reverse the decision to uh, change the name of Sir John Hawkins Square. This came out of the Black Lives Matter campaign where uh, there was concern raised that a particular street in Plymouth was named after somebody being described as a slave trader uh, and that uh, the council would have to change their name. The council uh, certainly said they were going to change the name of the street, but they weren't following their own procedures uh, in order to do that. Uh, and so he challenged it in court, attempting to take uh, judicial reviews and so on. So this has been running on for a couple of years now, uh, but it has apparently come to an end. Uh, with the decision by the court to impose an extended civil restraint order. Uh, so Charlotte Davis, who's the uh, barrister acting for Plymouth City Council, uh, is in the Plymouth Herald here as saying that on the 3rd of April 2023, after considering Plymouth City Council's grounds for response, not only did Mr Justice Baker find the latest claim for judicial review to be totally without merit, but Mr Bamping's continuing and repeated litigating, uh, re-litigating for the same issue, uh, to be frivolous and vexatious. Permission for judicial review was therefore re refused and further to that, an extended civil restraint order made. This means that Mr. Bamping cannot issue proceedings against Plymouth Magistrates Court or Plymouth City Council uh, at, any, at all for a period of two years or any proceedings related to the renaming of Sir John Hawkins Square against any party without permission of the court. Um, but the, the fundamental problem here is that uh, Plymouth City Council did not follow their own procedures when they attempted to push this through. Uh, and so he was absolutely right uh, to be attempting to get some kind of uh, judicial process going on it. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, uh, he has to be applauded for sticking, for with, it, absolutely sticking with it for this right. long. Uh, and, uh, you know, any suggestion that this was in any way vexatious is, of course, nonsense. And, and I would just say, well, the uh, representatives of the City Council would say that. Yeah, so at each, uh, at each turn when uh, Mr. Bamping tried to get additional information from the uh, council itself as to what they'd done, their responses became more and more opaque. Um, so the evidence on the table seems to indicate that something completely different was going on to the judgment now reached in the court. But if you challenge your local authority, and you, you as an individual have to, of course, either run your own litigation or you've got to raise the money to pay for it. The council, on the other hand, uh, pays for its uh, court appearances via the taxpayer. Um, this is one thing which people should always remember. But now if you dare to challenge the council and keep going, you're simply going to be banned from court. Well, we should, <laughs> we should say, Brian, that in this case, the council 
I believe, will be attempting to recover their costs uh, from Danny Bamping. Uh, well, that, so will, we, that will be interesting to observe. Yes, indeed. Uh, anyway, let's uh, move on to online safety bill. And here's Rishi again uh, from the Business Connect conference. Uh, and uh, of course, the, the furore over um, end-to-end encryption continues. Uh, this is what he had to say on the issue. I think everyone wants to make sure their privacy is protected online, but people also want to know that law enforcement agencies uh, are able to keep them safe and have reasonable ways to do that. Uh, That's what we're trying to do with the online safety bill. So, of course, uh, the online safety bill would effectively make uh, end-to-end encryption uh, in in communications illegal, and the UK would become the first country in the world to do that. But, of course, the justification for it is all about safety and keeping people safe. Well, Sajid Javid has doubled down on this uh, because he doesn't want to keep people safe. He's worried about paedophilia. He's saying in the bill, the government has introduced an amendment that I want to say some people are campaigning against. uh, And uh, this is to do with something called end-to-end encryption. uh, And that's when someone uses, say, WhatsApp. The message today is completely, totally, utterly private between the sender and the recipient. And therefore, he says this is a playground for paedophiles. And that is uh, the justification for removing uh, reasonable protections from uh, government snooping. We... (laughs) You know, at the end of the day, we uh, have highlighted from the beginning of this entire online safety process, going back to 2017, uh, that the government was cynically using the excuse of child safety in order to push through very draconian uh, surveillance uh, and censorship powers. Now, the censorship powers have been watered down somewhat, but the surveillance powers have not. uh, And the the government extremely concerned about people uh, using end-to-end encryption which cannot be snooped on by either the intelligence services or as would be empowered by the online safety bill itself, Ofcom. Uh, and so uh, the, we use emotive language like playground for paedophiles in order to try to justify uh, the removal of that capability from uh, the general public. Yes, yeah. <laughs> what more can we say? Yes. It's becoming ever more ob- obvious. Well, let's just uh, step back to Sunday when uh, UK Column worked with the Alternative View team uh, to do the Smart Cities and Surveillance Agenda online um, conference. Uh, I have to say it was very enjoyable, very good talks by Pippa King, John Kitson, Mark Anderson and David Dubine. So we're going to say well done to everybody for making that happen and particular well done to the AV team. Can I just mention that for anybody that watched the live stream that's a UK column member, uh, you can now watch the on-demand versions as a UK column member as well if you use the same code to get onto that. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Well, this uh, leads in very nicely to other reporting in our news today because um, I used a couple of images to give an introduction to the Alternative View um, conference. And uh, this one here was simply to take a look back in time uh, to when high streets were packed full of people going about their business and commerce, but also enjoying the ambience and enjoying the uh, whatever the <coughs> city centre streets had to offer. And I contrasted that with a move towards smart cities. And this is an aerial view of Milton Keynes here, but we can obviously see big changes. And um, we, we're now talking about uh, 
more changes of cities to make them smart. And apparently this is going to uh, improve people's experience. Well, is this the case? Personally, I don't think it. And certainly the uh, people speaking at AV on Sunday didn't think so. But it also brought us back to uh, Plymouth. Plymouth is a city changed dramatically, heavily bombed in the Second World War, then rebuilt under the Abercrombie plan. But if we go back 20 years or so, the big issue was urban regeneration. And this was the start of EU funding pouring into the UK, uh, city councils, local councils scrabbling in order to get their fingers into the EU coffers. And with it came cor corruption and also activities of that famous organisation, Common Purpose. Um, now, I'm intrigued to see a pretty powerful headline crop up on Teesside. Uh, Keir Starmer calls on government to answer tea. Tease works questions after MP alleges industrial scale corruption. Uh, the Labour leader fell short of calling for a full investigation. Ben Houchen and Tease works have responded to Andy McDonald's comments. Let's have a look at the video of the uh, MP Andy McDonald uh, raising this issue in Parliament. I felt for him. Today, Private Eye revealed truly shocking industrial scale corruption on Teesside, a huge site acquired by the public body, South Tees Developments Limited, for £12 million in 2019, subsequently had hundreds of millions of taxpayer investment. Any future sale had to be on it on market terms, but we now know that private developers exercise their option to purchase for a mere £1 an acre, plus inflation, paying £96.79 in December 2022. I have the transfer, Mr Speaker. The only economic growth being delivered is into the accounts of Ben Ouchin's pals, Messrs Musgrave and Corney, who for a bargain of £100 will benefit to the tune of £100 million. All the while, the state remains on the hook for the ongoing environmental costs. So will the Leader of the House ensure that the Duluc Secretary comes to that dispatch box and sets out what plans the Government has for a full investigation into this industrial-scale corruption. Leader. Well, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his question. Um, the relevant questions are not until the 5th of June, so I will write on the Honourable Gentleman's behalf to make sure that the Secretary of State has, uh, has heard uh, what he has said. So, as you've shown earlier in the news, uh, Mike, the Conservative government is going to get deeper into bed with the private sector. And this sort of um, interesting activity between the private sector and the public sector, this is a wash all over the country. But if we dig into this one a little bit deeper, we should uh, put up the uh, essentially response from the two gentlemen accused. So this headline here from Yahoo News, Teesworks businessman challenge MP to go to the police following inflammatory speech. Uh, comes on the back of escalating political tensions over Teesworks. So um, we'll give you a little bit more. This I found interesting because that report was made by one of the democracy uh, reporters, uh, but when it comes to T's work, 
the organization come partnership responding it's anonymous but that doesn't get picked up by the uh, democratic uh, democracy reporter so it says in the past mrs musgrave and corney have treated mr mcdonald with contempt that he deserves but his recent speech under parliamentary privilege was a step too far and an abuse of power it's obvious from his comments that he believes that criminal offenses have been committed by all three men as well as the professional officers of the Tees Valley Combined Authority, South Tees Development Corporation and the legal advisors involved in the contractual agreements in relation to the Tees Work Land site. If this is the case, then Mr MacDonald should make a formal criminal complaint to the Chief Constable of Cleveland Police and provide any investigation of a criminal nature so that an investigation can occur without delay. Uh, Mrs Musgrove and Corney will be willing to assist any investigative process as they have nothing to hide and are keen to expose Mr. McDonald's motives, which are driven by vengeance, mischief, and a dis desire to destroy Teesworks to advance his own political ambitions. So that's pretty tough language coming back to somebody who stands up in Parliament waving documents showing some interesting sums of money. But if we get into the depth of this, this is Teesworks uh, website themselves, the UK's largest and most connected industrial zone, unrivaled in scale sorry, in size, scale and opportunity. So it's 4,500 acres on the banks of the River Tees, is Europe's largest brownfield site. Uh, it's home to diverse, sustainable and low carbon activities. That all makes sense to you, Mike? Yes. I'm puzzled a little bit. Uh, so here it is. Um, and um, what we then pick up is that we've got a board of this conglomerate made up of strong leaders with a wealth of experience in business and regeneration projects and includes representatives from the public and private sector. So what are we dealing with here? Is this government? Is this public? Is it private? We're not sure. And it goes on to talk about the backgrounds of the people. But if I sum this up for you, in this conglomerate, we've got mayors, we've got politicians, we've got the private sector, we've got a member of the EU Association of Gas and Electricity, we've got development corporations, councillors, elected councillors, and government advisors all in bed together. So if we say, where's the transparency? Uh, there is no transparency as far as I can see, but we'll do more on this. So are we dealing with the government? Are we dealing with elected uh, councillors and democracy, or are we dealing with huge profits for big business locked into the Conservative government? We'll leave you to decide on that. And uh, just to rub things in a little bit, this is an email that we received from a lady in America, Colorado. Um, it's a uh, part of a document, and in the document it's talking about the fact that if you're in uh, low-rise area, so you're in quality area of the city where the homes are in their own um, garden space or yard space, as the Americans would say. Houses are going to be converted to, into multiple use, and there's nothing you can do about this. So the whole uh, nature, the whole identity of the area being changed from low-rise, high quality into more and more people being packed in, and I've just put a note there to say 
uh, is this a coincidence that we have similar planning laws in various different countries, or is this reality of the United Nations Agenda 2030? I believe it's the latter. Uh, let's move on to cost of living then. And, and Hugh Pill, I mean, many people have seen this already, but Hugh Pill, uh, who's the chief economist at the Bank of England, well, he was speaking to the uh, Beyond Un uh, Unprecedented podcast uh, at Columbia Law School yesterday, the day before. Uh, and he's made some comments that uh, many people have found quite offensive. Uh, let's just look at what he had to say. Somehow in the UK, someone needs to accept that they're worse off and stop trying to maintain their real spending power by bidding up prices, whether through higher wages or passing energy costs on to customers, etc. Well, that's okay. Uh, he's talking about uh, the um, energy companies and so on, bidding up the prices and criticizing that, causing inflation and so on. But he went on to say this, what we're facing now is that reluctance to accept that, yes, we're all worse off and we have to take our share to try and pass that cost onto one of our compatriots and saying, we'll be all right, but they'll have to take our share too. Uh, that pass the parcel game is, that's going on here, uh, that game is uh, one that's generating inflation and it's part of, sorry, and that part of inflation can persist. Uh, so he's talking about people demanding more and more pay. Uh, that's driving inflation. Really, we shouldn't be doing that. We should just be sucking it up and accepting that this is the new normal uh, and uh, cost of living is at this new level uh, and we'll live with it. Now, as far as I can see, he didn't mention uh, the fact that the Bank of England has pumped uh, £100 billion uh, pounds of uh, quantitative easing into the economy during the COVID period. That has got nothing to do with the inflation. Inflation, we don't need to worry about that at all. Uh, and he also didn't mention the fact that he earns just shy of £200,000 per year. Uh, and, you know, that fact has got nothing to do with his comments about uh, the general public uh, sort of wising up about inflation and, and not asking for pay rises, because, uh, you know, why would he worry about, that, about, about those people? Well, I can't imagine he worries about much, Mike, actually. <laughs> Does that bring us back to Debbie then and Dominic Cummings? Yes, Dominic Cummings. Who remembers three years ago in 2020 when Dominic Cummings put this weird, and it was weird, advert out, um, advertising for weirdos, wild cards, people that haven't been to university, unusual people, um, wild cards, and artists, people who never went to university, fought their way out of an appalling hellhole. Does anybody remember that? Because I do. And he gave a, a Downing Street email address. Um, and I've been watching what Dominic, Dominic Cummings has been up to for quite a while now. And he was wanting to bring in a new government agency called ARPA. So when Rishi Sunak was Chancellor of the Exchequer, Although he made, um, and people might not have noticed this, although he made uh, cuts to the research and development budget, he actually funded Dominic Cummings's mad scientists, in my opinion, idea for this new, um, this new government department called ARIA. Who's heard of ARIA? I hadn't heard of ARIA, but I have now, and it has been formally established. This has received royal assent. And it is now officially a government department. ARIA stands for the Advanced Research Agency, in, uh, Advanced Research and Invention Agency. So this is all about inventions. Now, before ARIA was given royal assent, some people might have heard of ARPA, which was going to be 
our, the UK's version, if you like, of DARPA. That's what Dominic Cummings has been writing his blog about for many, many years. And he's been determined that the UK has its own DARPA. And this is actually what ARIA is. When you go and look at ARIA's website, and as I say, they are a government department, it really does get into the realms of science fiction. This is what they're looking to do. Um, but before I ask um, Mike or Brian perhaps to read out that paragraph, because I do think it's those two paragraphs, because I do think they're very important, um, I'd just like to alert people to who's on the board. So you've got Entrepreneurs with Matt Clifford. You've got Kate Bingham who um, we all know from the Vaccine Task Force, and Sir Patrick Valance has also been appointed to the board. But would one of you just mind reading those two paragraphs out? Because I do think they're very relevant and, and very worrying in the grander scheme of things. Okay. Uh, it says UK Advanced Research and Invention Agency in creating ARIA, the UK government endeavours to, quote, cement the UK's position as a science superpower. The government plans to invest £14.6 in research and development in ARIA's first year, building towards the government's target of spending 2.4% of GDP on research and development across the UK economy by 2027. ARIA aims to, quote, exclusively focus on projects with potential to produce transformative technological change. Unquote. The agency will have autonomy over its own research and project choice and will recruit researchers from the public and private spheres. ARIA will tolerate a high level of failure in order to encourage investment in high stakes, high reward research areas. It will operate across the R&D life cycle. The agency's funding approaches will include inducement prizes, grant prize hybrid seed grants, taking equity stakes, attracting private co-financing and, acad and academic and entrepreneurial fellowships. So um, lots of failure is good for getting even more money in to take us forward to uh, transformative technical change. Uh, I wonder what that change is going to be about. Well, I'm looking at ARIA as being we're going to be getting loads of crazy ideas from crazy scientists and crazy entrepreneurs, and they're going to be funded by the British taxpayer. Now, ARIA are looking at a billion budget. So, you know, this is a big organisation. And Dominic Cummings, although he's not part of ARIA specifically, he's obviously still involved, and so, as is Rishi Sunak. So with Patrick Valance and Kate Bingham at the helm, what could possibly go wrong? Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that, Debbie. Now, while you were speaking, we have a guest that's joined us, and I think I should leave it up to you to introduce our guest. And a big thank you to him for uh, being able to get through to this particular news. Over to you, Debbie. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much to um, our special guest, which is Professor Fenton today. And just before I introduce Professor Fenton, I'd just like to tell everybody that... Um, we alerted Professor Fenton to the video that June Rain um, talked about the Nicola Wheatley lecture. And Professor Fenton has done the most incredible YouTube. Um, it's only 17 minutes long and we will show a clip of it. Um, but first of all, let me just welcome Professor Fenton. Thank you so much because I know that you're at a lunch um, and you've taken time out of your lunch to come and speak to us. 
but your YouTube is gaining traction, um, over 10,000 views, I think. And it's a very honest and it's a very um, direct and very easy to listen to takedown of the MHRA. Thank you so much for doing this. Would you like to tell us about why you felt you needed to do it and what the big message is? Well, first of all, thanks very much to you and Cheryl for alerting us to, to this uh, to this video. I mean, I had seen June Rain, I had seen stuff of June Rain before, but I just, until I really looked in detail at everything that she was saying, I, it, I didn't realise just how unfit for purpose the MHRA was. I mean, I do have some personal experience because I personally had to submit uh, a yellow card for a, a very close relative um, who suffered sort of life-changing injuries as a result of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I found the whole process uh, you know, ridiculously problematic. I never received any acknowledgement, let alone any follow-up. So I know how fundamentally flawed the yellow card system is. And yet in her video, she was promoting the yellow card system as being, you know, this, this absolutely the, the, the key component of identifying you know, potential, uh, early potential safety signals with new medicines. And yet clearly with the COVID vaccines, the exact opposite has been the case. They've essentially ignored all the incredible, the multiple uh, safety signals with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And the, the, uh, every, the more I look at the whole, you know, we, we've had some other issues with, with MHRA as well, with the, the way they um, have failed, for example, to respond properly to complaints about how the BBC was effectively advertising the COVID vaccines in their documentary, Unvaccinated. There was a major problem with the way the MHRA responded to that. But also, I don't understand, with all of the money spent on the sort of the COVID interventions, you know, there was £40 billion spent, for example, on the Track and Trace programme. Why didn't they spend what it would have only cost, what, less than, yeah, we could have done it for a few hundred, <laughs> for a few quid, set up a database where you could actually search properly, proper search of the MHRA uh, yellow card system. You can't even do that. I can't even find out. I can't find out how many reports there have been, for example, for the batch numbers that I reported. This is a, complete, is a complete, completely dysfunctional organisation. It's just not fit for purpose. And I should say uh, very quickly to people that don't know Professor Fenton, he is um, a very eminent mathematician, computer scientist um, and retired but Queen Mary University. London. Um, Professor Fenton, I'm hoping you can stay with us for a couple of minutes because I just want to put a little bit of your video up. But first of all, let's remind ourselves, June Rain, what does she say? June Rain says that the safety of the public will always come first. Clearly, we're not seeing that. Um, and then I would like to just draw people's attention to Steve Kirsch's uh, newsletter and Substack, where he's come out very definitively um, in and asking everybody to watch Professor Fenton's YouTube. Um, he says, I quote, today their role, the MHRA, has shifted to being a vaccine enabler, precisely the opposite of their previous role as a regulatory authority. When they see the huge numbers of reports into the UK yellow card system, their version of theirs 
They actually think that it makes the reporting system is working rather than the drug is unsafe. Think I'm kidding? Watch this 17-minute video segment from UK Professor Norman Fenton. I've just posted it two hours ago, so you can be one of the first to see this. So let's just do that, because Professor Fenton, if you want to go and have a look on YouTube, please go and look at Professor Fenton's YouTube. Um, you can see a slide of it um, on the screen there, I hope, um, Analyzing a Speech by June Rain. Um, it's on Professor Fenton's YouTube, and his conclusion is... Absolute, well, I mean, it says it all, doesn't it? The links in the description below provide further evidence that the MHRA is not fit for purpose. Um, let's just take a very quick look at, at a little part of Professor Fenton's video. The MHRA is the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency in the United Kingdom, and its CEO is a woman called June Rain. And recently, I was alerted to a speech that June Rain made in November 2022 about safety of medicines. And it's quite a remarkable speech because although she did talk about the work they were doing on the COVID vaccines, she said remarkably little about their safety. And there were some highly unusual parts of the speech which I want to highlight here. I encourage you to watch the full speech, which is linked in the description below. Near the start, she talks about the fact that her role as regulator is changing as a result of the pandemic. My role as a regulator is changing, catalyzed by the COVID-19 pandemic. But what won't change is that safety is our top priority. Well, that's comforting to know. But is she really delivering on that promise? What have we learnt from safety monitoring for vaccines and therapeutics during the pandemic? And that's not a simple matter of rearranging our teams and our leadership. It really means culture changing from a regulator that's a controller, a watchdog, a policeman, if you like, to an enabler or an air traffic controller landing the plane that is the new entity, the new asset, from a black box to a system partner. Wow, that's quite a statement. So from controller ensuring that unsafe vaccines don't get approved, to an enabler, which presumably means working with the pharma companies to ensure that vaccines get approved as fast as possible. So often people have said, we send in a yellow card and we don't know what happens. Well, I can personally vouch for that. I never got an acknowledgement, let alone a follow-up, of the very serious adverse reaction I reported on behalf of a loved one after the AstraZeneca vaccine. In fact, I believe it's no longer even on the system. So there we have this amazing uh, YouTube by Professor Fenton. Professor Fenton, I, I realise you've interrupted your lunch, so can I just bring you in very quickly to make some, maybe some final comments before you return to your, to your uh, friends and colleagues? Yeah, maybe um, it's probably worth mentioning that there's also been this Perseus report, which I wasn't actually co uh, connected with, but there's, uh, which is also basically summarising the failings of the MHRA. And I understand today that that's been delivered, um, a hard copy of that has been delivered to every single MP. So those who haven't seen that report, I think you can go to the Perseus website. It's linked in the description also in the video, because that also covers a lot more ground actually than was even in my video so thanks very much professor fenton thank you very much indeed um we look forward to speaking to you some more
Thank you. Brilliant. Uh, okay, thank you for that, Debbie. Uh, okay, Brian, let's uh, move on to, uh, well, a bit more on Dominic Rab. Well, I had to pick up on this and I'll try and do this section reasonably quickly because it needs more time spent on it. But okay, here's the Guardian headline. Tories consider controversial plan to politicise the civil service after the Rab scandal. Number 10 advisor urges political appointments in a radical plan following crisis over bullying. So bullying's the issue, but to solve the problem, we're going to politicise the civil service. This rang huge alarm bells to me. And it wasn't long before this gentleman came up, Francis Maud. Uh, so here's the Civil Service World magazine saying Francis Maud is back in the ring and here's what he should bear in mind as he looks at civil service accountability. Um, Alex Thomas says that his too hasty review should focus on clarifying uh, responsibilities in government and not on eroding civil service impartiality. Now, um, what's really going on here? Um, so I was very happy that Civil Service World pointed out that uh, Lord Maud uh, had started the job of government reform back in 2010. And UK Column was very, very interested in him then. He returned to the cabinet office in 2020 and, quote, is now back again, chairing a quick fire review into governance and accountability in the civil service. Uh, due to report at the end of September, uh, just after we expect a new prime minister to take um, uh, take office. Now, that report was back in that civil service report was back in August 2022, to put it in context. Context, And I just wanted to label this man because, of course, Francis Maud put himself forward as the Minister for Transparency for the Conservative Party. And um, let's have a look at the sorts of things he's saying now. In order for ministers to get the best advice possible, we need to be more robust and less mealy-mouthed about politicisation. Uh, it's perfectly possible to preserve impartiality and indeed prove continuity while allowing ministers more say in appointments. Does this worry you, Mike? Because this, to me, I find unbelievably dangerous. Politi uh, politicians are going to be helping with the appointments in the civil service. Are we dealing with the parties or are we dealing with the civil service? Soon we will not know. I will address this in the accountability and governance review I'm undertaking for the government without material adjustment, there will be more cases like Rab's when frustrations boil over. So now we can see the agenda. This terrible bullying means we've got to change the whole civil service. He says we need a much more robust culture with less groupthink, more rugged disagreement and the confidence both to offer challenge and to accept it. But if you're using ministers to select their own civil servants, presumably you can have less disagreement Indeed. and more groupthink. And uh, this is the Minister of Opaqueness, I think, speaking. That includes accepting candid feedback. Today, there's no external accountability for the quality advice other than to ministers. There could be value in regular external audits conducted by qualified outsiders with published results. Would that be Bill Gates coming in to do an audit if it was a pharmaceutical matter? Well, he seems to spend a lot of time in number 10 over the years. but Indeed. Uh, this would reward officials who get it right. Uh, 
and provide a stimulus to the rest. So if you tow the line, you're going to get a reward. Mm. But if you don't tow the line, they're going to give you a stimulus, stimulus uh, to deal with you. Probably you're going to be silenced or kicked out. We also need to be more robust and less mealy-mouthed about politicisation. So that was repeated there. This would reward official... Oh, sorry, uh, apologies, duplication there. In France, permanent civil servants often have overt political affiliations and it causes few problems. In Australia, permanent civil servants in ministers as private offices are released from the normal obligations of political impartiality and can take part in party political activity. So everybody is going to become a, a member of what a sort of nationalist conservative movement, Mike. Uh, quite possibly. Would quite. that be uh, national <laughs> not, not national conservative, not Nazi? Nazi? Is that is that what we're talking about? Well, uh, we'll save that for another news, but some very other interesting things going on behind the scenes. We don't need to go that far, but the key as always is transparency and pragmatism. Uh, without change, we will see tensions, rumbling, frustrations, building and relationships, fracturing. So he's pretty, he's pretty um, uh, confident on what is coming unless these politicization reforms of the civil service come into being. And by the time we've got politics working with big business, Who's running the show? Commercial organisations, Bill Gates himself. Well, this whole story took my mind back because if we go back to, to 2010, uh, when uh, Francis Maud was uh, hot on transparency in a cabinet office role for the Conservatives, it had only been a couple of years before uh, when we had the House of Commons Library uh, turning on anybody who dared to point a finger at the political charity Common Purpose. And this is one of their reports and uh, content in section four is the Common Purpose organisation. Uh, and what did they tell us? Nothing to worry about at all. Common Purpose uh, is active in the political sector. It's active in the civil service. It's active out there in the public and private sector, but nothing to worry about. It's just a little charity funded by Julia Middleton. But the UK column was hot on the trail of links uh, between a whole range of people at very high level, the head of the civil service at the time, Francis Maud there in the cabinet office, Maud Patton, even Prime Minister David Cameron uh, was himself involved with uh, promoting common purpose. And of course, together with the BBC, uh, this was the mix that was uh, telling us there should be more censorship of the press mm. to stop the truth coming out. So we highlighted a lot of this in CP Exposed. Uh, this is some talk about the links between those various people. This is cpexposed.com if you want to go and see it. But of course, it was work by the UK column via CP Exposed that produced uh, back in November 2012, no less than 12 pages by the Daily Mail on Common Purpose, where they started to raise questions over disturbing relationships between people in the political, private and indeed charity sector. This was overwhelmingly work from the UK column. No recognition was ever given. But the pages went on and on. Special investigation, like a giant octopus 
its tentacles, that's common purpose, reach into every cranny of the establishment. A nuclear bomb that dropped on the press and the motley crew who seized their chance. So the Daily Mail here, and I'm making my point, printed 12 pages saying how dangerous all of this networking was, and then it simply failed to follow up on the subject. Yes, just to correct you slightly on one thing, I mean, the Daily Mail took information which we sent them, they put a team of journalists on it, the journalists published this report, and although there was no public acknowledgement, there was private acknowledgement. Brian, and we just just thought we should make that point. That is true. Uh, If we could just pop the last one back on screen, down at the bottom it says, Campbell and Blair were architects of the baleful labour Murdoch axis. Now, the Daily Mail didn't do its research properly because it led you to believe this was a sort of left-wing problem. But of course, we knew at the time very clearly that David Cameron was in it up to his nuts. Presumably, he hadn't been wearing a face mask at that stage. And uh, as the article went through, um, it got more and more outspoken about the dangers of common purpose working in a political sense amongst the civil service. So just to put a little bit of meat on it, uh, this is the sort of information you can get on the CP Exposed uh, website. Um, So this is a Downing Street letter way back in 2007, and it's thanking a Mr. White for his email asking for information about an event held here at Downing Street by Common Purpose. And a response came back Uh, including letters where Common Purpose was trying to set up this event. And what Common Purpose is saying to to, uh, 10 Downing Street is what they're after for the Common Purpose visit into number 10 is an insight into what is happening at the centre of government with regard to long-term strategic thinking, policy and delivery. And my question is, what makes... Common Purpose as an organisation think it has a right over the public to understand what's happening deep in the heart of government to do with policy. So amazingly dangerous stuff. But now we are going to be saying to the civil service, you're going to become more political and presumably charities like Common Purpose can just run riot through the whole of the civil service system. Uh, This is a final Uh, email which uh, was obtained by Freedom of Information. So it's from Alan Miller, who was part of Common Purpose. And he says, uh, thank you for your recent query. I'd like to, uh, I would like to be reassured that the information about your organisation being put out by Brian Gerrish in Plymouth is totally without foundation and inaccurate. I can reassure you that these allegations made by Brian Gerrish and picked up by the BNP, CIB and David Icke are wildly inaccurate. They were so inaccurate that the Daily Mail printed 12 pages on it. Uh, The um, Telegraph also printed the story, as did the Mirror and the Sun. But according to the charity, oh, no, no, this is all false information. So I think the Tories with Mr. Maud are up to some very dangerous things in taking control of the civil service. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, Debbie, look, we're going to finish on this. Uh, so the next three uh, slides here, uh, Google and DeepMind launching MedPam. 
Yeah, well, this go, this goes back to really what we've been talking about all in the news and AI and ChatGTP. And of course, ChatGTP has now been superseded by ChatGTP4. But here we've got MedPalm, which is this huge language model for, med, for medical professionals and also patients can access it. Basically, it, it means that um, it works very similarly to ChatGTP in that you just put symptoms in um, and it'll bring out a diagnosis. It will research papers. I picked it up originally from a tweet that I saw, and the tweet led me to the empirical paper that this has all come from. So I've got reference to that. Um, it's called a large language model in code clinical knowledge. Now, so what does this actually mean for us in real terms? I've got a little tiny piece of video to show you, but clearly, Who's going to diagnose you in the future? Is it going to be ParMed? Is it going to be AI? It looks as though it could be. Have a look at this tiny bit of video and, and see what you think. Imagine a world where artificial intelligence could assist doctors in diagnosing diseases, planning treatments, and improving patient care. Recent advancements in large language models, or LMs, have made this vision a reality. Welcome to the world of AI Physician. In this episode, We'll be exploring a groundbreaking research by Google on the intersection of artificial intelligence and language models for medical diagnostics. Google's Health AI team has been working on a cutting-edge research project called MedPalm, which stands for Medical Predictive Analysis Using Language Models. MedPalm 2 combines AI and language models to analyze vast amounts of medical data and provide accurate predictions for various conditions and diseases. MedPalm 2 consistently performs at an expert doctor level on medical exam questions, scoring an impressive 85%. This is an 18% improvement from its previous version, MedPalm, and outperforms other AI models in the field. So with a shortage of ultrasound specialists, AI-assisted ultrasound can simplify image acquisition and interpretation, helping identify important information such as gestational age, in expecting mothers and early detection of breast cancer. But Google's impact goes beyond diagnostics. They've been working with Mayo Clinic over the past three years to explore how AI can support the planning process for radiotherapy, a common cancer treatment. The contouring step, which is labor-intensive and time-consuming, can take up to seven hours for a single patient. Google's radiotherapy model has the potential to significantly reduce this time and help more patients receive treatment sooner. These collaborations and research efforts highlight the potential of AI to augment diagnostic and treatment planning processes in healthcare, particularly in underserved communities, with a focus on safety, equity, and patient well-being. Of course, there are challenges in developing and implementing AI and LM in medical diagnostics, such as data privacy, ethical considerations, and regulatory compliance. However, the potential of MedPalm to revolutionize medical diagnostics is immense with further research and development. Google hopes to see it being used widely in clinical settings to benefit patients worldwide. So there you can see the collaboration between Google and DeepMind. Let's not pro forget Professor Hannah Fry, DeepMind. She's in it up to her neck. But just the last sentence really on this was from the academic paper itself, considering we're going to be relying on this AI. And it says the resulting model, MedPalm, performs encouragingly but remains inferior to clinicians. That says it all really, doesn't it? Yes.
Okay, Debbie, thank you very much. Uh, I suppose we should end. I think we're at the end there. So a very big thank you to all our viewers, wherever you are in the world, UK or worldwide. We're very grateful for all the support that we get. And we just say uh, we can only do what we do with the financial support of our members. So if you're not signed up with uh, UK, um, with UK Column and you'd like to help us grow, then please do become a member. Your support would be uh, much appreciated. And uh, we have got plans for some very exciting things coming up in the very near future. We'll end there. Uh, just one thing, Norman Fenton video out on Thursday, I believe. Is no, it Tuesday, Tuesday, a big uh, pun. No, our, our interview with Norman Fenton is going out next Tuesday. That's correct. Next Tuesday. Yeah, just to uh, highlight that. A man who's done a lot of really good work. So we'll end there. We will be back in a few minutes for extra time uh, with our very own UK column supporters. Thank you. Bye-bye.